the demands on the profession for the doctors is insane. So that any of them can be at their best at all, I find impressive. So I feel like what palliative care can offer is a piece of that system where the heart and the spirit can reside and where you can be in that place with them around your medical care. I am very mystified that it doesn't appear to be widely known and that also it doesn't appear that many people have access to it. And going to a palliative care physician from day one has been shown to help people live longer. Their life expectancy is longer on chemo. And it's not hard to figure out. Last night, I had an episode of nausea and some reflux. And I had, from my chemo experience, I I had five medications that would not normally be in an oncologist's repertoire of what they give a patient when they're on chemo. Welcome to the RMBC Life podcast from Share Cancer Support, a place where we explore life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts and advocates who help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico, and our emphasis this month has been on quality of life issues. Last week, we spent time exploring the role of therapeutic writing in the process of healing and living. This week, we turn our focus to the role of medical providers in helping us to manage symptoms and side effects and to increase our quality of life. Moments ago, you heard from two individuals living with NBC, Lita Dederich and Dr. Deanna Duncan, and we will hear more from them next week in part two of this series. Co-host Natalia Green is joined by new co-host Dr. Paula Jane, with interviews of two medical providers, Anita McDonald, nurse practitioner, and Dr. Kimberly Kersin, who've made palliative care an important part of their work to help their patients living with MBC improve their quality of life. Hi, Natalia. Welcome, Paula. We're thrilled that you're here. So Hi, glad Lisa. to be here. Before we meet Natalia's incredible nurse practitioner, Anita McDonald, We'd like to hear from you, Paula. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how palliative care has worked in your own life. Thank you, Lisa. I'm Paula Jane. I've been living with triple positive NBC since 2017. I've also had early stage breast, ovarian, and endometrial cancers, so I've had a fair amount of experience as a patient. On the healthcare provision side, one of my first jobs was working as a nurse's aide on the dementia wing of a nursing home. And that experience taught me how much kindness and good care really matter in the face of difficult diagnosis. Career-wise, I've always been really drawn to the intersections of science and the humanities. After interdisciplinary grad work, I ended up with a career as a social scientist at CDC. So I came to this diagnosis with a variety of perspectives on the U.S. healthcare system, both as a patient and as somebody working in public health. I think that's been extraordinarily helpful in navigating this disease. So my work taught me that in the U.S., much of medicine is specialized, meaning it's focused on one body part or one body system or one disease, and that there's also an emphasis on things that are curable. Unfortunately, both of those traits really put you at a disadvantage when you're dealing with metastatic disease. So I knew I'd be on treatment for the rest of my life and that that treatment would impact my body and my life in multiple ways. 
And that due to how insurance is run, that my medical oncologist, no matter how wonderful, probably wouldn't have the time to manage all those other parts of me while going through treatment. I knew that I needed a specialist to help me manage my quality of life. And that's when I turned to palliative or supportive care. And deciding to enroll in that, I sound very calm. It was not an easy decision, but it's made a huge difference in my well-being. Like Lita talked about, I am saddened by how few of my friends with metastatic disease are connected to supportive and palliative care. I know that many don't know about palliative care as an option, and those that do might immediately connect it with hospice. And my hope is that we can use these episodes to dispel some myths and to help people get the care and support that they need to live as well as possible with MDC. So in this episode, we get to talk to our own providers. I got to talk to my amazing supportive care doc, Dr. Kimberly Kersine. And I spoke with Anita McDonald, my nurse practitioner and palliative care specialist. I am Anita McDonald. I'm a nurse practitioner for Utah Cancer Specialist. Right after nursing school, I just blindly applied for a job and it ended up being on an oncology floor. And I just fell in love with the oncology patients and just the care. And that just became one of my passions, just working with oncology patients. And I knew pretty soon after nursing school that I wanted to go back to school and get a master's and become a nurse practitioner. After I did my schooling, the oncology team approached me and asked if I wanted to work for them. And so I've been in it for 11 years this year, and it's been great. We have a lot of metastatic breast cancer patients that we see. So that's my connection. And of course, Natalia, <laughs> being able to work with you and see you in clinic as well. And I think I, I started with you, is that right? So at your first visit there, and that's been what, going on three, four years? Almost four years, yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of my connection and background. So when you're dealing with a metastatic breast cancer person or an MBC person, what quality of life issues do they tend to be dealing with compared to early stagers? Yeah, I think a lot of depression, anxiety, worry, fear, feeling hopeless. I think body image is a huge thing, right? Things are just changing all the time. You don't feel like yourself. The self-esteem thing can be hard relationships. What does that look like if a patient is married or has a significant other and just even relationships with other family members, with kids or parents and how to bring things up? I think all of that is part of quality of life. Memory, usually the metastatic breast cancer patient has had previous treatments and the notorious chemo brain that we all talk about dealing with that and recall and dealing with energy. And I think a lot of fear. I think fear is so paralyzing in the metastatic breast cancer setting just because it's a daily thing. You wake up with fear of, is today going to be the last day or am I going to have more time? And so those are some of the quality of life things that I think are forefront for metastatic breast cancer patients. I think out of all the symptoms that I have had since I've had cancer, the most surprising has been my mental health about what has affected that either from like your first diagnosis with anxiety to now being in pushed into menopause and your hormones changing. What cues are you trying to pick up from patients that they might need to seek a mental health professional? Yeah, and I think that's where some of it coming into being a little bit more personal or personable with patients just to see how are you functioning? Do you feel like your mood's okay? I think it's just those simple questions. I think we shy away from some of those simple questions, but I think that's where it really comes of 
not just, hey, how are you? But no, really, how are you? Are you functioning? Are you doing okay? Do you feel like we need to change any medications up? Are you taking your medications? I think it's just those simple questions that I think sometimes, unfortunately, time limits us on delving into some of that. But I think it's just as providers being willing to take the time to ask those questions and really listen. And I think asking for help, I think most people are this way. It's hard sometimes. You want to feel like, nope, I've got it all under control. Nope, I've got it handled. And you're really good to be able to say, no, this pain is here. Like, it's still here. What can we do? And so I think it's on both parts. What is treatment like for those living with MBC? How does it differ from early stage folks? Yeah, so early stage, you're looking at cure versus in a metastatic breast cancer setting. We know that cure is no longer on the table. And so we're looking at more controlling disease, optimizing just overall well-being, yet still doing all that we can to control disease. And so it's aimed more at, I'm going to throw the word out, palliative. It's aimed more at controlling versus curing. And I think when we say palliative, it can scare people off. And I think a lot of providers will avoid saying the word palliative because people associate palliative with giving up or they associate palliative with less care. When I think of palliative, I think more care. So in the metastatic setting, you're looking at more palliation, controlling symptoms, um, yet still optimizing quality of care and not compromising that either. So um, I think in a metastatic setting, that's really what we try to focus on. And even though that word palliative isn't necessarily used, I think the focus is still there on, okay, what does this patient want? How can I help them with those wants or with those goals? And knowing that the game plan is going to change maybe monthly, maybe weekly, just depending on where that patient's at. I'm glad you mentioned that some healthcare professionals might hold off saying palliative care because when we started talking about this podcast, like, wait, what? What is palliative care? I've never heard this term. I start Googling things and a lot of it just jumps right to hospice as information about palliative care and not just about controlling your quality of life. I would have jumped because I'm a worrier and I need things to be explained to me on paper very plainly. And you know, I like numbers. I like statistics. I like to know everything up front. I worst case scenario. And I would have jumped to that conclusion too. Like, crap, am I in hospice now? Or are we just waiting for me to pass at this point? And then I started talking to my husband about it. He goes to a lot of my equipment. So, you know, Danny, he's like, Uh yeah, they have like pamphlets and, and I'm never reading into those things. And of course he is. And the more I heard about what palliative care is like, holy cow, this is like what Anita's doing for me all the time. Like, I thought I was a special patient and you were just looking out for me. You are a special patient. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps it has been avoided being used in my situation a little bit, talking about palliative care. But essentially, I've been receiving palliative care this entire time, especially since being diagnosed metastatic. So that's really interesting that healthcare providers may not say up front they're going through palliative care options with their patients. Because, you know, palliative care is so close with the hospice and all of those things. It could feel, maybe in that perspective, that it is like, oh, crap, now we're looking at end-of-life stuff only. Yeah, and I really think palliative care should be renamed. <laughs> Can I do that? <laughs> sure. I think, be, I think it should be quality symptom management care. Only because I think, like you said, when you hear palliative, people automatically associate it with, 
oh, they think I'm going to die or, oh, it's time to give up. It's hospice. They're giving up on me. And I think in your case, for sure, I've avoided that word. And I think in our younger patients, we try super hard to avoid that word because the stigma behind it. And so I don't think I've ever, in your case, or at least that I can remember, I don't think I've ever said the word palliative. I don't think I ever have. And I think it's for that reason, because of the fear that comes um, with that word and just the emotions that it can provoke in patients when they hear that word. But really, I think it's quality symptom management and just looking at, okay, what are your goals and how can I help you with that goal or those goals? I'm wondering if people living with metastatic breast cancer, if they're resistant or reluctant or afraid of seeking out palliative care, can it also be described as something that actually, it may not elongate your life in terms of hours, days, months, but it will improve those days, those months, those years while you're living with the disease. So much so that if it gives you even, I don't know, 50% more energy or 50% less pain, it allows you to live that much better so that your days are actually all the more rich so that it's really about life improvement. It's the life improvement operation as opposed to oncology sometimes is life sapping because we're sapping the cancer out of our bodies if possible. And it's trying to extend our lives, but maybe we just should call it the life improvement operation or something. It's how do you make your life while you have it as best as possible? I love it. I love it. And I think that's key. I think it's helping them and honing in on that. It's quality. We're trying to improve quality, even though we're not giving more years we can give better, improved quality. Let's just make it super awesome. Like, let's, yeah. just, let's just pour in awesome. Yes. We just got to make palliative care sexy. We just got to do yeah. it. And Natalia can do that. And there is some literature that says early entrance into palliative supportive care can elongate lives. So it can be both. It can be better quality. And for some people, it can be a little bit longer. But yeah, the awesomeness, that's what we need to call it. (laughs) Dr. Kersine calls it the secret sauce. The secret sauce, the secret awesome sauce. Uh, She also calls it supportive care, supportive oncology rather than palliative for exactly that reason, is that it supports everything you want to do. So it's like you're running a marathon with this godforsaken disease. And supportive care is those awesome people cheering you on the sidelines, giving you that water, that orange that's already peeled for you and a space blanket and making you feel comfortable, making you run your best race. I think the reason people don't hear about palliative care is because we're always talking about the disease and we're living in the metastatic world. Like part of it is, yeah, I'm trying to keep this disease from advancing, but I'm also trying to keep my life as normal as possible while this disease may slowly take me. So yeah, it's just like, how can you condition yourself to best go through cancer? Stephanie Walker in her interview had the most brilliant, like clear definition of the Mm -hmm. difference between palliative and hospice that I've ever seen. And she said, palliative is for when you're up running around, living your life, making memories with your kids. It lets you do all of that. And hospice is for the very end of your life when you turn towards death. 
And to me, that that's such a clear distinction. I like that continuum because I think that's key. Mm-hmm. I think that knowing that it is a continuum and you don't know how long that period's going to be, but you want to live every moment of that continuum to the best that you possibly can. And I think that hits the nail on the head for sure. How do you decide when you can provide palliative support, quality of life support, and when you think you need to refer a patient out to your own palliative care, outpatient clinic? I think early on, a lot of times I feel like I can manage some of that. Granted, I'm probably wrong half the time, (laughs) but I think early on in the process, some of those things are a little bit easier, especially if I know the patient really well and I feel like the patient can open up to me. But I feel like if it's a patient that I don't, click with very well, or I I can tell they're just holding back and they're not opening up or that I can tell they're in a lot of pain, but resistant to trying anything or doing anything. At that point, I'll say, maybe you should visit with our palliative care providers. Or if I know that they're going to need more support, more than what I can give in a 30 minute visit at that point, I'm referring out. And I think that's not always the right thing, to be quite honest. I think that in a metastatic setting, to be fair to any patient, I think that should be earlier on in the process. And something that I'm learning is that I do need to do that probably earlier on so they have more information and more support. I see some of my colleagues and I see patients of theirs occasionally, and I think, oh, you've got lots of symptoms that aren't managed. And I'm the one bringing up palliative care and coming from a person that they probably don't see as frequently. It gets a little bit rough. It gets a little bit hard. And I think that's where it's so individual. And I think a lot of it falls on the providers knowing that part of our care in the metastatic setting is palliative care, right? That should be at the forefront of our minds. And if we don't feel like we're comfortable or capable of heading that on, and if we don't feel like we have enough time in each visit to be well-rounded and controlling some of those things that we do need to be looking at, yeah, let's get them referred to an outside palliative setting, whether it's in our clinic or out elsewhere, to be able to focus on that. When patients are not receiving adequate quality of life care from their oncology office, or when wonderful nurse practitioners like Anita feel that their patients need a little bit more support, they might turn to a dedicated palliative care clinic like Emory's Supportive and Palliative Outpatient Clinic, which is directed by Dr. Kimberly Kersine. I am fortunate to have Dr. Kersine as my own supportive care doc, and I've heard other patients refer to you as an energizer bunny because you just keep going and going, doing everything you can for your patients. And that certainly has been true for me. Thank you for taking this time to be with us today. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to work in supportive care? Oh, thank you. I'm actually an internist trained and a geriatrician. And after leaving residency at Yale, I went to become a hospitalist because I really loved acute care medicine. I did that for a number of years, and because I never say no, somebody asked to be medical director of a hospice, and I saw for the first time an interdisciplinary team that really looked at the whole patient, that understood the family dynamics, understood the social dynamics, and I got to see why as a hospitalist many times, even though I had really good treatment plans and my partners did as well, The patients were coming back to the hospital and our plans were failing because we hadn't taken into account the whole person or even the wishes of the person. We never asked them what was most important, which would have informed our treatment plans. So 
I really fell in love with the idea of interdisciplinary, interprofessional, and whole person care. I was fortunate enough to go to University of Arkansas to pursue a geriatric fellowship. Again, another interprofessional, whole person care profession. I learned really the idea of symptom management and how the same principles that we had adopted in this end of life care really applied to all care pretty early on. And that developed a love of palliative and supportive care where all of this support to help people live better live longer and become their best selves and have their best lives, but not at this just short period of time. And I found that to be really fascinating and really started to focus more upstream. Again, I had an opportunity to come to Emory to direct the outpatient supportive care clinic. Through here, I've really focused my time and my life's work is working with people. I don't like to call them patients, but working with people who have serious or life-threatening illnesses and helping them navigate that system, managing their symptoms and providing them with a team that really supports them to remain integrated and intact with their lives and their personhood and their dignity while helping them physically. That all makes complete sense to me that you have spent a lot of time in these professions, starting as a hospitalist. When I've been hospitalized, The hospitalist is always the person that I make my best friend Mm -hmm. because they manage everything across all the different conditions. And just as one simple example, the hospitalist said she needs sleep at night. So she's okay. Leave her alone in the middle of the night. And they made it possible for me to sleep through the night without having labs drawn or people Mm -hmm. checking on my vitals and that quality of life. They really made it possible for me to be in the hospital and get rest and get care. And that almost never happened. So it makes total sense that you started there and then have just continued to build (laughs) on whole person care. So thank you. And so if you don't mind talking a little bit about how Emory decided to land on supportive care. When the clinic was originally embedded in oncology, it was called their palliative care clinic. When I arrived in 2015, we were going to expand to the entire campus, all patients with serious illness. And I felt supportive care was a better definition of what we do, because even in our definition of palliative care, we provide an extra layer of support. And the kind of care we provide, we're providing symptom support, spiritual support, and social support. And The profession of the doctor who provides that support is a palliative care trained physician, but what I'm actually providing is supportive care. So I think that's probably closer to what we're actually doing. When I've heard people talk about supportive or palliative care, I've heard them talk about it as whole person care. So could you talk a little bit about what whole person care would mean for somebody with metastatic breast cancer? When we have patients come to us, we're very much focused on the illness and everything for the illness that's the center of our world. We make our treatment plans particularly aimed at the illness. Unfortunately, people's lives don't work that way. When you walk into my office, we're discussing just a part of your life. You are not metastatic breast cancer. You are you who happen to have metastatic breast cancer. 
So you have social relationships, financial obligations, things that make you things that you love, things that you're stressed on. And all of those things go into how you experience the healthcare system and actually what you're able to accomplish and do within our system. So when we talk about whole person care, we have to figure out how to make that treatment plan fit into your life versus making your life fit into our treatment. Because the whole point is for you to feel better, to feel as good as you can feel. If somebody came in to the supportive care clinic and they did have financial concerns or they did have spiritual concerns or socio-emotional concerns, could you talk a little bit about the team that makes up a supportive care visit? So supportive care comes with an interprofessional team because the purpose, if you look at our definition, we provide extra life support with patients and families. When they have serious illness, we support the treatment plan and spiritual, physical, and social symptoms. And in order to do that, you need more than a medical doctor. So we'll have social workers or licensed clinical social workers who are focused on not just the mental health, but also the logistics of things. If you become food insecure, FMLA paperwork, insurance forms, disability, or just what do some of these things mean? We could discuss what your goals are, but your goal might be, how do I actually get to this place? So we have to deal with some of those logistics. So when we think about spiritual support, it's not just focused on the areas of of how a person connects to their religious community, but it's really about how you connect to your spiritual self. So the spiritual health clinician will help with religious traditions, but They'll also talk about dignity and personhood. People question, why does this happen? Who am I now that I have this illness and my life has changed and I don't recognize this body? Really trying to get at those questions of dignity where the doctor can be empathetic and even sympathetic, but we may not have the right language and words always to be helpful to the next level or to go into that deeper place that you need to help with healing. Already, we've heard some clear advantages to seeing a doctor who treats you as a whole person, who can help with practical concerns like transportation and spiritual concerns about meaning. Let's also talk about some of the physical concerns that can occur with MBC, and a large one is pain management, particularly for those living with bone meds. Could you talk a little bit about the impacts of pain for someone living with MBC and then what the options are for safe and life-affirming pain relief? Back in the day, when we didn't really understand pain very well, we didn't treat it very well. So we would allow patients to suffer because we didn't really understand pain. We didn't you know, see it as something that was incredibly important. Then that shifted to the forefront, knowing that if we don't treat pain, it's very difficult to think and have good executive function decision-making. It's difficult with pain to keep your mood elevated because if you're in pain, it's like being in purgatory. If you ever looked at the depictions of Dante's Inferno, that's really what it's like. So how can you maintain hope? Even if they tell you they have this wonderful treatment that can keep you alive, but are you going to have to live with excruciating pain? that can really alter the decisions or actually take things off the table that otherwise would be tolerable. So pain affects every part of your personhood and uncontrolled pain can lead to suffering. And once you're suffering, everything else is moot and point. So then came opioid therapy and instead of restricting our opioids, we became very free with them and made some mistakes. What I explained to patients who have metastatic breast cancer, we are now 
very equipped to help guide and direct the treatment and use of these medications. So we think of these medications as a tool. We do recognize that they have side effects. Physical dependence can be one. And we talked about the difference between physical dependence and addiction. We try to minimize the use, but we certainly would not want you to be afraid to use them or to live in a state of suffering, just not use them indiscriminately. So there's a lot of thought. That's wonderful to have the provider side of it. And I think from the patient side, I think there's sometimes fears about encountering bias and stereotypes about being drug seeking or questions about addiction and not always fears. Sometimes people walk in and they are bounced away from care that is needed. Absolutely. And I think that for pain management, if you happen to be on high dose opioid therapy, regular pain clinics may not be the right place for you just because of the way they're designed. They have excellent providers, but they may not be the right place. So going with supportive care, if that's available, that can be really helpful. There are smaller communities where there are pain management providers who have essentially become palliative care providers and they get it because they've been taking care of seriously ill patients. But a pain management clinic that doesn't take care of seriously ill patients, their focus is different. You will get care, but the kind of care you're needing and that multi-dimension care is better treated with supportive care. And then allowing us to connect you with specific pain management providers if the pain outpaces what we can do, and you will find a lot easier navigating that. And then there are people with cancer that suffer from addiction, and that's okay. That's an illness. And you come and we manage it. I don't get mad at you if you have a relapse of your breast cancer. So I certainly am not going to be angry with you if you have an issue with addiction and you relapse. That is what that is. You're deserving of care, comfort, and you should have it and we'll care for you. So with supportive care, we use these medications all the time and we put in our safety precautions. But we're also thinking about other non-opiate medications. There's other medications we do use, anti-inflammatories. And why I like the word supportive When you think of supportive care or metastatic breast cancer, think of supportive oncology because that broadens the scope. So we work with wonderful cancer pain management specialists to do wonderful things that don't require pills. They do require needles, but don't require pills. (laughs) Supportive oncology can include acupuncture, massage, therapy, There's nuclear medicine. There's all of these things that you don't think of. So when you enter into supportive care, we're not only evaluating you for what medications we give, because that's the tool I have in my toolbox, but I'm also thinking about what are other supportive oncology specialists can I bring into the team that might be able to help with this specific pain and limit the amount of pharmacology somebody's having to take. So I think that The supportive care doctor may be the conductor to get you to the right person to help manage the pain. So pills are always there. I say pills are always in my back pocket. I love a pill. But if I can actually get rid of why you have the pain, (laughs) that's probably better. And many places have physical therapy. And that worked for me. I came to you with joint pain from my aromatase inhibitor. I actually ended up with a frozen shoulder and you immediately sent me out to a wonderful breast cancer physical rehab center and the PT fixed my shoulder. 
and I could move again without being in pain or wanting to do bodily harm to my loved ones. It was like magic and it just took the right referral. And so I talk about my positive experiences with palliative care with friends living with MBC all the time. And yet they ask me if they're not in pain or they already have a therapist or if they're currently doing well, why do they need another doctor for supportive care? And so what would you say to them? I love what I do and I'm a firm believer in specialty palliative care. But I also know there's lots of ways to move through a journey. So what I would say to your friend, if you are feeling well supported and your care is going fine, then there's no need for me to interfere in that. You don't need yet another appointment. But if I get an opportunity to at least have an introductory meeting and get to know you, you get to know me, you get to know your resources. When the roof falls in, when the emergency happens, instead of figuring out who we're going to call, you have a connection with somebody to call. And I think it's a lot easier in a crisis to talk to somebody that you have met than to just introduce this new person that you have never met. And you never know when that crisis is going to come. So what I explain to people is we're like a safety net. I'm your net. You're walking on a tightrope and know that there's somebody walking under you so you're not going to crash. And I think that's important. I love this analogy of palliative care as our safety net for people living with MBC, allowing you to climb farther. Do more even if you never know when you're going to need it, but it should definitely be there ready to go. Absolutely. And besides that safety net of having someone on call and the wider range of pain management tools, what else could a supportive care offer us? Sometimes you don't know what you're struggling with. We had dealt with this a lot in geriatrics where an older person would say, I'm supposed to be in pain, I'm 70, or I'm supposed to feel this way, I'm supposed to not eat. Well, that's actually not true. These are things that are abnormal, but we normalize them in our head. So sometimes when you visit with a supportive care person, you may not know that things are not okay or they're not optimal. You've just learned to live with it. So being able to talk with us. Also the idea of having tough conversations. For people who are planners, if you really want to make sure that things go the way they want them to go, sitting down with us when you feel well, like yourself, not burdened by pain, when the decisions that you make then are clear-headed about what you actually want. When you're suffering, it's a lot harder to make these decisions. So having a conversation with me about your goals, about your life. What are the things that you want for your children, your family? What are you willing to accept? What are you not willing to accept? Is done with a clear head. When you're in distress, then it's a lot. These questions can almost seem burdensome and confusing and you just want to cover your head. I mean, we get through them, but it's a lot harder. And we may get answers based on distress versus what you actually wanted when you had the opportunity to think. And having done my own medical emergency planning documents with you, I know this can be really hard conversations and I can't imagine doing them in the midst of a crisis. It it was hard enough to do those conversations (laughs) when I was well and it was a sunny day in Atlanta and you were there and the social worker was there and everybody was so kind and it was hard enough to do it then. But I totally agree with you that trying to do something like that in a crisis would have been so much harder. And I'll add, just to help promote (laughs) supportive care, that even the mundane everyday life things that you don't think about, like losing your appetite or being nauseous or having 
diarrhea that doesn't stop because you're on a med that is effective, but it gives you the runs. And those sorts of things can be managed really well in supportive care. I remember at one point I thought I had progression. I came in and we talked and I said, this is the drug they're probably going to put me on. Can we talk through what I should expect? And you talked through all the different side effects that might happen for me. And then there was one, we were worried about how it might affect my gut. And you said, before you even go on this med, come see me and we can prescribe something that will limit it or might do away with it altogether. And that's preventive care. Mm -hmm. So just that sort of pre-planning is another wonderful benefit that I've gotten from supportive care. That's true. When you go to your oncologist, like I say, if you go to a plumber, you're going to get your pipes fit. And rightly, that is what it should be. What we provide is now that you have that plan, how are we going to make that plan work? And you're right, Paula, preventative. This drug has great outcomes. Then part of the job is the level best is to make sure you can tolerate that. Because people will look at the side effects and go, no, out of hand. I'm like, wait a minute, don't say no. I'm like, come with an open heart to your oncologist. (laughs) Be open. Be open. What can we do to help you tolerate it? And then if we have done that and you cannot, then it's time maybe to consider transitioning or switching, particularly if something's very effective. One of the things we also do is talk to your providers in doctor talk. And if I know what your bargain basement know is you can't live this way, sometimes if I'm able to express that to my colleague in the language that Mm -hmm. I use, They have that in the back of their mind and it can make those conversations easier. If they know what you're, yeah, because it's hard. Your oncologist is holding the keys to your well-being. So it's sometimes difficult to bring up, maybe I don't agree. Maybe I'm worried. Maybe I didn't understand something. Maybe I had Mm -hmm. a question. And so for some people, it's a lot harder for them to engage with their oncologist. But when we can give them the questions that you have, They already had that ruminating in their minds and they can take the burden of you asking and address it. That's wonderful. Yeah, that colleague to colleague conversation can hold so much weight for patients. It really can make a huge difference in outcome and quality of life. In our clinic, patients will sometimes come and run scenarios in their head. Everybody has questions. There's some days where you might have the day where you're driving to chemo and you just don't want to go. And, you're in, and you want to scream and you want to be able to say that, but it's not acceptable to say because we told you that you have to fight, fight, fight. When you enter into supportive care, you have the opportunity and the freedom to say, I hate it and I don't want to do it. And we're not going to overreact and we're going to talk with you about that. And then you'll go do it. But you just needed to unburden yourself in a place where somebody understands and hear empathetic listening and allows you to go through all the scenarios in your mind so you can make the decision that's right for you. And I just have to say too, that one of the bonuses that I found with supportive care is that you guys get that in a way that a lot of other professionals, like even GPs or gerontologists or medical oncologists don't that when you have honest conversations with them, their eyes will track over to the side. They'll stop looking at you. They can't be present with the fact that you're in this for the long haul. So just from a patient perspective, having a provider who is 
grounded in that reality and willing to sit with you in those spaces where you're making decisions is invaluable. I would agree that having a provider that you trust is the key to having some of those conversations. Yep, and I think it goes both ways. Sometimes medical providers take their cues from us about how honest they can be because it does take two people to have a good conversation. So from the patient side, I think it's important to communicate that you're willing to have those harder conversations. Agreed. Anita and I had a conversation like that when I was diagnosed with brain meds. When you got diagnosed with brain metastasis, I'm not going to lie, I was freaked out. It was one of those, okay, there's some hard discussions that need to be had. And I still remember that visit that you came in with your hubby and you said, okay, just tell me straight up, what am I looking at? Am I going to be able to have time with my kids? And what's my timeline? What does my timeline look like? And I think at that point I realized, okay, I can be completely honest with Natalia. I can tell her this is what it looks like. And this is best case scenario. This is worst case scenario. And I think that as providers, we have to be more realistic. I think we have to be more willing to have those difficult conversations because the patients need it. Like you needed that at that moment. You needed to know what what does it look like down the road, but still be able to instill hope, right? Like you want to be realistic, but still help them to know this isn't a death sentence. There's still a lot of treatment. We're going to run into a lot of struggles. We're going to run into a lot of symptoms, but we can still do things depending on what your goals are. And at any point that we feel like, okay, it's futile. Of course, we need to jump in and say those things, but I think it's just focusing on those goals and being realistic, but still being hopeful at the same time. So we've talked about the benefits that being connected to supportive or palliative care can bring, but how many people living with MBC actually do have access to supportive care? We've been trying to figure this out in Georgia, but basically, if you are near a large cancer center, then you probably will have access to supportive care. And when you are an inpatient, you'll have access to supportive or palliative care. The problem comes with when you come out of the hospital. So people who live more rurally, people who don't have the ability to travel to these larger centers, often will not have access to the interprofessional supportive care. What is happening, though, to fill that gap are community-based programs that are often associated with hospices or home health, try to fill that gap. And there are in-home palliative care programs, which offer varying degrees of support. The other thing that I think is important to recognize is that there are many oncology offices, maybe even smaller offices that will practice primary palliative care. So primary palliative care, we're training hematology and oncology physicians, almost required to learn more about pain management, about communication, and about other ways to support patients. So I'll have some patients with metastatic breast cancer that come from other places and they'll say, I've never seen a palliative care or supportive care physician before, but my care here was great. And I'll ask them what happened. My oncologist sat down and they talked with me and the social worker helped me with my goals. And I had a nutritionist and I had access. So what that place did is that they could not have a specialized provider but they practice these primary palliative and supportive care skills. And that's probably more realistic. Natalia, that sounds exactly like what's happening with the care you receive from Anita. Yeah, I never realized it was called primary palliative and supportive care, but that is exactly what I'm getting. That's amazing. And unfortunately, I think somewhat rare. 
For those who don't have access to someone in their oncology who can provide primary palliative care and who are seeking it, what other barriers might they face? Other barriers are still that because palliative care has been closely yoked with hospice, there's still an education gap among physicians as well as among patients, which cause them to worry and not refer to the supportive care that they need until the disease is very close to the very end. And the problem with that is that's not where you get the most benefit. The most benefit you receive from supportive care is to support you when you feel like you and stretch that out in time longer. And there are several studies that show that patients who engage with supportive or palliative care services, there can be a life extension benefit. And what that benefit is, is if we're taking care of problems before and upfront, if we're noticing symptoms upfront, then we don't put you in those risky medical situations because we're handling them. We're handling them. We're supporting. We're noticing you're not eating. We're noticing that your pain, hey, you have changed and you get the treatment that you need faster because you have that close connection and people are looking at you as a whole person. So your care is tighter when you have supportive care. That's the secret yeah. sauce. Yes, it is the secret sauce. <laughs> so I just want to highlight this for our listeners so that yeah. they really hear this. What you're saying is that supportive and palliative care actually makes it more possible to live to do all the things that you want to do. And in some studies has shown that it can actually extend life a little bit. Am I getting that correct? Yes. And the extension, I believe, is from the extra support. Like there's nothing in just being referred to supportive care. Why you're having the benefit is in between those month or three month appointments, you're talking to somebody and we're addressing all the pitfalls and the needs that you have. And we're making things possible. We're relieving stress from families. There's so many problem solving and walking with you. It's really support. That's why I like the term support because your oncology team is so talented and they're going to take care of all your needs, but nobody can be everything to everyone and things fall through the cracks. And what's falling through the crack is often what's causing the problem. And when you are seriously ill, Nothing can fall through the crack and you can't wait. You can't wait for your problem to be fixed. If you have a problem, it needs to be fixed now. And having a team that's available to you to do that is a benefit. So we've talked about oncology offices and social workers in the oncology office, but so often, despite their intentions and the best efforts, Medical oncologists don't have the time, just don't have the time. And so for a patient who is in a high volume clinic or just has a doctor who's required to cut appointments short, where else can metastatic breast cancer patients find that care? When you come to our clinic, we're not managing the cancer. We're actually managing the multi-dimensions of you, you physically, spiritually, and socially. That's the direction of the visit. If you are someone over the age of 65 or a frail elder, gerontologist or a geriatric physician, they are trained in the same vein that palliative care is for that interprofessional sort of multidisciplinary whole person care because frail elders have that too. If you're an older person with cancer and you don't have access specifically to supportive care, 
your geriatric provider might be incredibly helpful. I have some people who will keep their primary care provider and see their geriatric provider because they need that extended time. And what that geriatric provider is doing is actually providing supportive care. Depending on their time constraints, if your cancer is being managed with your oncologist and that part is tight, then your general internist might step into the role of providing support. I think that being able to access good mental health resources with counseling, if you have counseling available in your communities, support groups to tend to that part of yourself, or even working with your spiritual community and some patients will cobble together that kind of care. They just have to think about it and be mindful. But that's not really ideal. Ideal would be to have supportive care versus the person having to go to different places. It sounds like it is possible with a lot of work and research to cobble together a team that can help to fill those gaps. But if it's at all possible, you could just sign up for supportive care, walk in the door and have someone else do all that work for you. Yeah, that would be my ideal. So we've talked a little about urban rural disparities in access to supportive care and research has documented racial disparities in general oncology care and clinical trials that impact the health outcomes for people of color, particularly black women living with MBC. Is a similar disparity also found within palliative or supportive care? This is particularly difficult. There's a whole body of literature that talks about people of color less likely to accept hospice towards the end of life or barriers in access to palliative care. And the way in which that research is done and that literature is presented, and we're working through this now, there's a whole move to figure out to do anti-bias research to ask our questions a little differently. But when you are a person of color, your provider may believe that you would be less likely to have these discussions. And so they don't bring them up or they assume culturally that you wouldn't want to have these discussions. Or actually, when you ask people of color, they actually do want to have these discussions. So there's a big push in palliative and supportive care and in medicine in general, and not only engage in cultural competency, but engage in cultural humility, allowing the patient to explain how they see these things, asking the questions, asking permission. But that takes a lot of work. So there's definitely a bias. There are hospice and palliative care deserts. And rural environments are also deserts in the inner cities as well, particularly for patients who are homebound. Patients where English is not the primary language, being able to access through the interpreter or having people who actually speak the language in those communities are incredibly important. And this profession has not done a good job about keeping up with that. So we have created these barriers and blame the patient for it. If you don't understand what I'm saying, and the interpretation isn't good, why would you agree to it? If somebody came to you in French and you didn't speak French and they were trying to take away medication, like, you know, no, I don't know what you're talking about. So we have to expand access by expanding the amount of people, diversity within our profession. But we also have to untrain people to not approach people of color with these options and help them figure out how to approach people in a way that is culturally humble. Patients feel comfortable, you know, entering into these options, knowing that they would be understood.
Here's Natalia talking about the same issue with Anita McDonald. I think something that I would give credit to you, Anita, is you seem very interested and also concerned about my pain management. Whereas my medical oncologist is brilliant, but sees so many patients, he's an older white male doctor, and I'm sometimes not as comfortable talking to him about certain things, or I might not even feel like he has time to listen to certain things. But just the way you approach people and me, it opened the door for me to even talk to you about symptoms and pain management and things like that, because it's hard sometimes the people of color to acknowledge those things with your doctors, because I also don't want to look like I'm pushing for drugs and I'm pushing for pain management. And you seem to be really receptive about it and talking to me like, what's your pain level at? Looking at me, if you could tell that I'm in pain or if I'm not just by my movement, even if I'm saying that I'm not, you're like, well, you're <laughs> You're, you're shuffling a little bit or you're moving this way, but you'll call me out on it all the time. So I think a lot of times that's something that patients might be missing or really scared to approach your doctor about quality of life issues as well. I agree. And I think in people of color and Latinos, I think just in that population, it's so hard because you do have to deal with all of the other stigmas that come with being a patient that doesn't look like the majority, especially in Utah. And so there can be some fear behind that. And I think early on in practice, I realized that. And so I think I try to be a little bit more sensitive to that and help people know, you know what, I know this is painful. I know you have pain. I know you have symptoms. Let me help you. Just let me know what you need. Let me know. And I think that's why I try to talk about like family or talk about other things to help patients feel a little bit more comfortable so they know that they can open up and talk to me about some of those things because it is hard. You don't want to have a label placed on you. You don't want to be stigmatized. And I think when it comes to people of color, Latinos, any minority group, that is something that you have to think about as well. My mom actually, I don't know if I've even told you this before, but my mom actually had metastatic breast cancer and she is from Africa. She came here when she was in her twenties and we were all raised here, but I went home a couple of years ago to help her through that process. And it was hard to see how doctors treated her. It was hard because they would hear the accent and they would automatically think, oh, she's uneducated, so we don't need to take much time. But it was like, hold on, she's a person. Like, you just still need to take the same amount of time, hear her out, listen. If you don't understand what she's saying, ask her to repeat herself. And she had to learn how to become her own advocate. And I think that's something that you've done really is becoming your own advocate, researching things, learning about things and coming and saying, hey, I looked this up or I saw this and I want to know more about it and push your doctors, push your practitioners to give you more information, to tell you more. And I think that's so important, especially in minority groups, for sure. We've talked a little bit about the need and the movement toward provider anti-bias training. In your own experience as a Black supportive care doctor, do you have ideas on how people of color and other minority groups such as LGB or trans individuals can identify a provider who they can trust to support not only their oncology care, but also their symptom management and quality of life needs as well. There's a few places. GetPalliativeCare.org can keep a database of palliative care physicians around the country or who's offering palliative care. Oftentimes, when you're accessing things at a university, you're just going with whoever they have given to you. So it really takes being proactive. So if you're not feeling empowered to ask for supportive care, at your oncologist's office, also asking for supportive care with your social worker or the, the case managers that are assigned to you. 
Another cool thing that's happening is insurance companies are actually asking and will recommend. So you may get a case manager with your insurance when you get a serious illness and asking them that, hey, I wish to access supportive care. And I've seen them actually email oncologists and ask on their behalf. Some insurance companies, particularly for frail elders, are actually sending people out into the home. Not all of it's happening in traditional um, sense, but it can be quite difficult and there can be a desert. For trans individuals and lesbian and gay, and for that community, they're developing a database of friendly physicians who are trained. And within um, palliative care training, they're actually training for diversity of how to take care of patients who are lesbian, gay, and transgender and queer. Because many of us were not educated. The healthcare system wasn't educated, so... You're going to see more education, not only in your primary specialties, primary care oncology, whoever you're engaging with, but there's also been a large push for education within the palliative care community. Curriculum, it appears on our boards, we have to be competent. And so that when you are eventually dealing with a fellowship palliative care trained provider, they should have special um, sensitivity and understanding. So things are getting better, but are there formal programs? No, it still helps you. You still have to look and seek those out. There are not as many people of color who are in Mm -hmm. this profession. There's a push to increase it, but it still remains um, very low. So there's a disparity even within our profession and even within our literature, there's disparities. So if someone were to listen to this episode and they're learning about palliative care, or even if they're part of a minority group, what should they be asking for at their own clinics? Or if they're not getting the level of palliative care that we're talking about now, what should they be doing? How can they be proactive about it? Yeah, I think just asking, what are the services that you have? What are the services that you have to help control symptoms? What are the services that you have for anxiety, depression, social work services? I think in that first visit, when patients come, we just load them with so much information and then that just all goes out the back door. You just forget about a lot of that stuff. I think just making sure to ask frequently, what are my options? What are the resources? And if you don't provide them here, where can I go to get those? Because we have lots of information that we have like phone numbers or websites and things like that. I think it keeps providers on their toes as well when patients can ask those questions. I think sometimes the providers, sometimes we get in our own world, we're a little bit busy trying to rush things. And I've had patients say this to me as well. Okay, I just need you to not rush. I need you to just focus for a second. And so I think grounding your providers as patients is super helpful as well. But patients just challenging their providers about what are my options? What are the resources? Point me to where I need to go. If, as you said before, supportive care really is the secret sauce (laughs) to making life good, a key to living as well as possible, then how can we get more people living with MBC connected to supportive care? And I know that's a huge question, so maybe we could just take it in parts. So number one, what can an individual do to get connected to supportive care for themselves? And then number two, how can the NBC community help mobilize to increase access to high-quality supportive and palliative care for all of us? Number one, as an individual, you have to ask. 
And when you walk into your provider's or your oncologist's office, feeling empowered to ask. So remember that we are actually hired by you to perform a service. So if you ask us for a service that should be provided, which is now considered standard of care by ASCO, their big society who mandates that patients with advanced cancer should have access to specialty palliative care, you have a right to ask for that. Many breast cancer patients have had to advocate for themselves have really taken charge of their care, this would be a place to take charge of it too and just ask. So ask the oncologist? Mm -hmm. Just say, I would like to have supportive or palliative care. And then if the oncologist says, you don't need that because you're not dying, we can cure you. You just say, yes, I know, but I need more support. I just want support. And they will hear that. They will hear that and they'll say, okay. I think the oncologist, especially when you're going through difficult treatment, but they feel good about it, they don't want to do anything that might deter you from continuing. And what we as palliative and supportive care providers have really worked hard is really explaining that our goal is not to derail any treatment plan. We support the treatment plan. And in fact... Yes, with supportive care, it's actually sometimes more possible to stay on your life-supporting treatment because it handles the side effects. It allows people to stay on the treatment for longer. And oftentimes, your supportive care doctor and your oncologist will be aligned. So when you're asking for us, it may feel to them that you're telling them they didn't do a good job. So up front, just say that, I would like this for me. I'm hoping that this will help me have better life. I appreciate what you're doing, but I need more. Because that's the truth. So like John Mayer says, our great American prophet, just say what you need to say. Uh, But being willing to ask. Number two, what you can do as an organization is you have to do more things like this. Palliative care, when you have your conferences, when you're putting your website in your literature, this is standard care. And we have to promote it as standard care and not something as a side or something that we whisper. And now we're going to have palliative care talk to you. <laughs> like, sort of, you right. know, we, to normalize yeah, the, it. Yeah, the leaders in the group have to see it uh, and demand it as a right, saying, I need my cancer treated and I want to feel good at the same time. And I want my team that makes me feel good. And so you say, I don't want to survive my metastatic breast cancer. I want to thrive with it. And I cannot thrive without my team that helps me thrive. And, and reframing, because that's actually what we're doing. Anybody who does this profession, are, what gives us joy is seeing you be happy. And that's how we measure our success by your improvement in quality of life. So you can call us your quality of life team, your thriving team. But demand it and demand it. And when you all demand it, you say that my care was not complete unless I have this. If you put this in your platform or when you're lobbying for Congress at your conferences, there should always be a palliative care talk. And you can call it a supportive care talk, a quality of life talk. But that should be front and center with everything you're talking about, what's going to be the quality of life component. And also expanding that when you think of supportive care, expanding that to all of your support. See us as part of that whole, your palliative care provider, 
you have your interventional pain, all of that, seeing us all as one collective whole that kind of brings you back and helps you live in your new normal. But you all have to demand it. Research is wonderful. Living longer is wonderful. But there's no point in living longer if you are miserable. Agreed. And I love that you are talking about supportive care as a right for people with advanced illnesses. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so as we think about coming together to push for this, to make it more possible for our friends to get access to it, is there current legislation or are there already political actions happening out there that we could get behind? Yes. So there is a wonderful bill that has been milling around Congress for probably about 10 years, and I've lobbied for this myself, called Pachita, and it's the Palliative Care, Health Care, and Training Act. The basic bones of this act is to develop palliative care training centers that would be located around the country. The beautiful thing is with the education and training is not limited to just physicians because there's plenty of residency programs, but it actually provides training for spiritual health conditions, social workers, and other allied health professionals that often don't get training in this area. It also focuses on expanding the workforce with evidence-based training. If this bill gets passed, you will have these training centers, hopefully strategically located around the country which will be able to expand palliative care training, access, and workforce outside of what I like to call the coasts, like California, New York, yep. there's certain Boston, Alabama, and then everybody else just fend for yourself. So we have to just figure it out, middle of the country. So we realize that's not very good, that there's excellent palliative care located in certain specific areas around the country where there's an abundance, but we're leaving most of the country out. This bill would work to fix that. It would also offer career development awards and actually have research. Because one of the things, just like you want high quality research to guide your cancer care, you need high quality research to manage your symptom management. Previously, we talked a little bit about the opioid crisis. And I firmly believe that high-quality research, if we had been involved in that, we would have handled that a lot differently. And the options for your symptom management and pain management would be so much farther along than they are now. And we could have prevented a lot of unintended suffering. But without focus in that area and trained providers in that area, we've fallen short. We're catching up. But this bill could be a real game-changer for the country. That's wonderful. And what do you think are the barriers to getting it through and seeing it into reality? I think when advocating on Capitol Hill, what I realized is nobody was opposed. I think when you have seen somebody that you love suffer and you have struggled with our healthcare system and realized it's less than ideal for patients with serious illness, there's no problem. So figuring out a way to make it personal And what I found is that on a state level and on a national level, your stories matter. You are dealing with people, and there are a lot of good people working in Congress, a lot of good people working in the House and the Senate who are very sensitive to these issues or would be if they knew. So educating your representatives is really important, taking five or 10 minutes and telling them why this is important. And so when it comes across their desk, they remember, oh, 
this isn't harming people. I'm not signing up for euthanasia. I'm not signing up for something that I find morally objectionable. This is about care. This is about whole person care. So having MVC be very tight on its message and very firm on its messaging. So that's the way I would approach it. As an introvert, I hate sharing my own story. But as I've become to move into advocacy, I'm learning more and more how powerful telling stories for social change can be. And that's really what it is. I think it's stories with impact. And that's the key is that you, you share your story to make lives better for other people, Absolutely. to make your own life better and to open doors for the people that you love, your MBC sisters and brothers. So yeah, thank you for that. I think that's a brilliant point and I am more than glad to team up with you <laughs> to bring the good word about supportive care. <laughs> yeah, the people, that's right. The people have, if the people ask for it, it will be provided. Yes. Awesome. And we'll just end with a summary question. What would you most like people living with NBC to know about supportive care? I would like them to know that supportive care is a safety net. Supportive care is exactly what it's supposed to do. Our goal, our only goal is to help you reach your goal. Our only goal is to help you live the life how you wish to live it and to feel like it's a place where you can be open. You don't forfeit anything. We're here to add to your life, not to take away. Dr. Kirstein, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today and for all the work you do for the metastatic breast cancer community. Your care has truly made an enormous difference in the quality of my life. You and your team have kept me sane and as well as possible through this nightmare of a disease. It truly makes all the difference to have you in my corner. You're welcome. And Paula, it's wonderful. Thank you so much for asking me to do this. It's a real honor. We're so glad to have you. I wish everyone could have you as their supportive care doctor. Maybe not for your well-being, but for their well-being, I wish that. Yeah, just say, keep fighting, keep asking, keep demanding. You, If you ask for it, you'll get it. Yeah, one way or another. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. I just want to take a second and thank you so much for doing this. I know you're a busy person, but thank you so much. And also thank you for being such a great help provider to me. Danny and I, my husband, we talk about you all the time. Like whenever something happens, he's like, what did it need to say? So you're like the other person in our family and our sideline that we're always consciously thinking about, especially when it comes to my care. So thank you for everything. You are so welcome. It seriously is a pleasure to work with you. You're like the easiest patient in the world. In the whole palette of hospice continuum, just being realistic and being involved, being open and just making sure we instill hope. So I hope I do a little bit of that for you, Natalia, because that's always my goal. But thank you for letting me participate in your care. Be sure to join us for part two of this series on the magic of palliative care. We hear directly from people living with MBC on how palliative and supportive care have played an important role in making their lives the best they can be. They share stories on how this type of medicine adds to our quality of life instead of the opposite. Here's a brief preview. I never thought I would need it, even though I find now that I recommend that everyone that is diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer should have a palliative care team. Everybody should. If I go back on the chemo, I pledge to you that I will make an appointment both with my primary care physician, who's a family physician, 
and my palliative care physician, who was my former partner who I worked with before. And I'll keep that up. I'll take my own advice just to make sure I'm really maximizing how good I can feel this time. This podcast is produced by me, Lisa Laudico, and our truly amazing team of Bob DeVito, Dar Finkelstein, Natalia Green, Victoria Goldberg, Alan Landsberger, Sheila McGlone, Riley Starr, and Anne Woodward. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at Share Cancer Support. Our senior intern is Sarah Mann, along with interns Angelica Alberstadt, Emily Lewis, Samantha Silverstein, and Amy Tedeschi. We have benefited from expert social media consulting from Jake Amarelli and sound design and original music compositions from Jim Cremens and Samantha Silverstein. You can find more episodes of Our NBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us, and look for a new episode every second Monday. Check out our blog and full episode notes on our website at rnbclife.org. We'd love to hear from you.